I want to uh, take as my text this morning that a reading from Paul's second letter to the uh, Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6, 6 through 10. And if you're making use of the Pew Bible, you can find that text on page 1147, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and beginning at verse 6. In fact, let's read that again just so it's fresh in our minds. Beginning at verse 6. The Apostle Paul says, And so we are always of good courage. We know that while we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. See, we are of good courage, he repeats himself. And, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. And so whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim, our ambition, to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one of us may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And so this morning I want to talk about confidence and ambition confidence and ambition. The writer to the Hebrews defined faith in this way in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1, one of the famous verses of the Bible. He said, faith is confidence. <laughs> faith is confidence in what we hope for, the assurance about what we cannot see. Faith is confidence in what we hope for, and assurance about what we cannot see. And so, so to have faith is to have confidence. And then what about ambition? Sometimes in Scripture we're warned against ambition, especially when it's the wrong kind of ambition. And so we read Paul's words in Philippians chapter 2 and beginning at verse 3. He says, And do nothing from selfish ambition, speaking in the church, do nothing from selfish amb ambition, but in humility count others more important than yourselves. Or Jesus' half-brother James in his letter, James chapter 3, verses 14 and 16, he said, But if you have selfish ambition in your hearts, don't boast and be false to the truth. For where selfish ambition exists, and he's speaking to the church, there will be disorder and every evil practice. But not all ambition is bad. In fact, Paul writing to the Romans in chapter 15 and verse 20, we read, and he said, and I make it my ambition to preach the gospel. And in our text this morning, Paul again speaks of ambition in a very positive way. But before he speaks about ambition, in particular godly ambition, he speaks firstly of confidence. And what he says is that we as believers are full of confidence because we're full of faith. We're full of confidence because we're full of faith. Notice again, uh, beginning at verse 6. And so we are, notice we, we are always of good cheer always of good courage, or as it's oftentimes translated, confidence. We're always confident. We know that while we're at home in a, the physical body, we're away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. 
Yes, we are of good courage. We are confident. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. And so Paul says that we're always confident, always of good courage, or some good cheer, depending on what translation of the New Testament you might be reading. And if we're full of confidence, it's because we're full of faith. As Paul says, we, how do we walk? How do we live? We walk by faith, <laughs> not by sight. Or in the New Living Translation, we read, we, we live by believing, not by seeing. Or Peterson in uh, the message Put paraphrase it this way. It's what we trust in but can't see that keeps us going. <laughs> and to walk by faith is, is to believe in what is real, even though you can't see it. We mentioned that last week. There are, there, we know, we know through science that there are things that are very real that we cannot see, and yet we believe in them. And if you don't believe in them, uh, that might be a problem. For instance, if you don't believe in gravity, uh, you might, well, I've, I think I'll just go ahead and, what, why take the latter? <laughs> Indeed, to walk by faith is to believe in what is real, even if we can't see it. To walk by faith is to, if you like, to believe in the promises of God. Uh, uh, promises that he makes about things that uh, maybe we can't see. Promises he makes that will unfold, but we have to trust and maybe take a risk to trust him for it and let him unfold what he said that he's going to unfold and to build our life on those promises. As the old uh, hymn put it, I'm standing on the promises of God. That standing on the promises, not just sitting on the premises, as one preacher put it. And so we're full of confidence because we're full of faith. And if we're full of faith, then the question begs, and so what do we believe? Well, we believe, as, as Paul says in our text, that uh, while we're alive in our bodies, we're separated from the Lord. Not separated spiritually, because He lives in us. But if I was to ask you, what does He look like? I, I'm supposing that, you'd be, that would be challenging. Why? Because you've never seen Him. The disciples saw him. The apostles saw him. They saw him alive. They saw him crucified. They saw him alive again. And then when they were challenged, in fact, they were threatened with their own lives. Stop preaching and healing in this name. They said, we cannot keep silent about the things that we've seen and heard. In fact, it's based on their testimony, their gospel witness, their eyewitness witness that we believe what we believe. But he's separated from us because we're still in the body. And so we believe in the Lord even though we can't see him. Uh, we walk by faith, <laughs> not by sight. And we believe with confidence. I, I'm never more sure of anything, I suppose, in my life. I'm certainly more sure about this than the economy. <laughs> and other things that are happening that I almost am tempted to despair uh, of things w that are going on and between fellow Americans and so on. But this I believe with confidence, the words of the Lord. He said he would come back, and the Apostle Paul said, and when he comes back, there'll be a shout and the sound of the archangel and the sound of the trumpet and the dead in Christ shall rise first, and on and on. 
And so I believe with confidence and with joy. Maybe you notice that. <laughs> Nothing makes me more excited than what I'm talking about now. In fact, Peter, writing to uh, the community to which he was writing, a community of Christian people, in fact, they were being uh, persecuted at the time. He talks about that in his first letter. But in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 8, he says this to the people to whom he's writing. He says, and though you haven't seen Jesus, you love him. I've seen him, but you've not seen him. I saw him. I've seen him. I love him. You haven't seen him. You love him. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him. You trust in him. And you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. You can't even put it into words, the joy that you have through this experience of this living, risen, ascended Christ. What was it that Jesus had told Thomas? Remember Thomas, you know, he wasn't there when the, 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 that Sunday that Jesus appeared first to the apostles. They were all there except him. And then when he turned up, they said, we've seen the Lord. And he says, no, I don't think so. He said, I will not believe unless I touch his hands and put my fingers in the prints of the nails and touch his side where, he was, where we all watched from a distance when he was run through by a Roman soldier with a spear through his heart to make sure that he was dead. I won't believe unless I experience that. And a week later, Jesus appears again. Peace be with you. The doors are locked. He just, he just, he just materializes. And there's Thomas. He goes right to Thomas and he says, Here, Thomas, touch my hands. Touch my side. Don't doubt, but believe. And Thomas fell to his knees and he said, My Lord and my God. And what did Jesus say? Thomas, you believe because you have seen. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. You'll see soon enough if you belong to him. In the meantime, you're blessed. You're blessed. I'm blessed for the opportunity to be able to take him at his word and walk by faith. And so we believe that while we are alive in the body, we're separated from him. But then also, as Paul says, we also believe that the mirror image of that statement, namely that to be separated from the physical body is to be present with the Lord. This is a, this is a comment on, the, on issues related to death. What happens as a believer when I die? To be separated from the physical body, Paul says, is to be present with the Lord. Notice again verse 8. And yes, we are of good courage. I'm telling you, he's, he's saying this, this will buoy you up. Yes, we are of good courage, for we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. In fact, he talks about this in other places. In Philippians chapter 1, for instance, he says famously, beginning at verse 21, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I'm alive, it's for him. And if I die, <laughs> whoopee! Because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. For if I am to live on in the flesh, in my physical body, that means fruitful labor. I'll keep on working for him. And yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. If it was up to me to choose between these two. Verse 23, I'm hard-pressed between the two. And my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Which gives credence and power, I think, 
to what sometimes might be used as a cliche when we say they're in a better place. And so this speaks of the state of the believer's soul but between death, his or her physical death, and the resurrection of his or her physical body, which is the ultimate end to which we're headed, so that, that, so that, immortal, that, that, immort, that mortality will put on immortality, so that in a resurrection body we can endure the everlasting nature of the kingdom of God yet to come. But in the meantime, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. There's an illustration of this. Famously, in Luke's gospel, in Jesus' interaction with one of the thieves, you remember Jesus was in the center, and on either side of him was a thief or a, a revolutionary. In fact, uh, they sometimes are called different things in the gospels, uh, but uh, they, they were thieves because, like uh, some revolutionaries today, they engage in criminal practices to raise money to carry out their, 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 their revolution. And that's what, they, that's what these guys were. They were Jewish zealots, uh, operating and murdering and so forth, uh, in an attempt to try to uh, what uh, hurt the Roman Empire in one way or another. But one of them uh, who had been casting aspersions at Jesus, you know, if you're the king, get us down from these crosses, he kind of came to his senses as he was watching how Jesus was responding to the, to the, to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the, and the people around and to, to the other criminal on the other side, on the other cross. And he had this change of heart. And so, as you remember, and we begin this at Luke 23 and verse 41, it says, and the dying thief next to Jesus said to Jesus, Jesus, remember me. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. You're the king. You must be. I'm watching. I'm, I know how I'm faring over here, and you, you look worse than us. And yet, I can't believe my eyes. You, you must be God come in the flesh. You must be Messiah. I've never seen anybody act like this. Remember me, Lord, when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me. This very day you and I are going to die. But when we do, you will be with me in paradise. And so as Paul says, for the believer to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And we are full of confidence because <laughs> we are full of faith. And the ambition of our life, moving from confidence to ambition, the ambition of our life is to please this extraordinary, unique, one-of-a-kind Lord. Notice again verses 9 and 10. And so, whether we are at home, in our bodies, or away from our bodies, whether we're here on earth, or whether we're in that intermediate state in heaven, whether we're in the kingdom, whatever the case may be. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he or she has done in the body, whether good or evil.
And so no matter what our circumstance may be, our life's ambition, our, our primary goal, our primary aim, the, the primary point of our personal and collective meta-narrative is to please the Lord, to glorify Him. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Isn't it an interesting way He expresses this? He doesn't say, and so the chief end is to keep the, keep the rules. It's very personal. It's the relationship between, between disciple and master. If you love me, keep my commandments, Jesus says. And the, and the true believer says, I do love you. I want to keep your commandments. And when I fail, there's nothing bothers me more. <laughs> and so our life's ambition is to please Him, whether in the body or out of the body, our primary ambition. As Paul put it, one thing I do is to please Him. We saw in Kierkegaard, the Scandinavian Dutch theologian who said, purity of heart. Purity of heart is to will one thing. Purity of heart is to will one thing. And what did Jesus say? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And so our life's ambition is to please the Lord. And pleasing the Lord matters. In fact, Paul goes on and he says that there'll be a final day of reckoning. Notice again at verse 9. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him, to please the Lord, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done or she has done in the body, whether good or evil. And so there's a day coming, we're told by the apostle, when the Lord will, if you like, judge our dash. He will judge our dash. You know what I'm talking about? John Burke, in his book, Soul Revolution, he wrote this. He says, it's strange how all of life gets summed up with two dates and a dash in between. We get a birthday and a death day, and we have little control over either of those. But we can choose whether the dash in between will mean everything or nothing. And there will come a day, Paul says, that the Lord will judge our dash. As Paul says, for we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. It's interesting, you know, the word appear is somewhat a little bit misleading. The word appear in, in the Greek means to manifest or to reveal. You can see where they get the word appear. But what's interesting about the word is that the word is in the passive voice. It's not in the active voice. In other words, the idea, the idea isn't that you must make an appearance like you do if you get a ticket or some other, or worse, you know, you, you have to appear in court. That's an active. We're telling, you to, we're telling you to do something. But this isn't a passive voice. This is about something that's going to happen to you, something that's going to happen to me. And so the idea is that we will be exposed at the judgment seat of Christ. 
And so in the New English Bible, which is a translation from several decades ago, they put the first part of verse 10 like this. For we all must have our lives laid open before the judgment seat of Christ. That's a, that's a, that's a, a great way to put it. And that's very reflective in English of the original language. We all must have our lives laid open bare before the judgment seat of Christ. This all goes along with what you read in the Old Testament and New Testament, that God is the judge of the intentions, uh, thoughts and intentions of the heart, not just actions, but what we think and the motivations that lie behind them and so on. This made me think of something that C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, The Great Divorce. He said, with God, there are no private matters. <laughs> Your life is an open book. Your life is constantly on display to the one who will sit in judgment and either say, well done, thou good and faithful servant, or perhaps something else. There will be a day of judgment, and the Lord will judge the whole of our life. And we're told by Paul here in our text that we will receive what we deserve according to the Lord's standard whether it be praise for doing good or something else for doing what in his eyes, it says here, it, evil in the text, a better way perhaps to take that is worthless. That what you've done does not help my cause at all. Which is why as believers we make it our ambition in life to please him. <laughs> to please him. It was A.W. Tozer who famously said, put God in his right place and a thousand problems are solved at once. Put God, take down all the idols and put God in his right place in your life and a thousand of your problems are solved at once. Indeed, knowing that God is God and that I am not and making it my ambition or you making it your ambition to live your life in a way that's pleasing to the Lord will not only serve you and me when the day of judgment comes, it will also serve us well even now. Remember what the, words, remember what the writer to the Hebrews said in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, one of my all-time favorite verses. It's been a favorite verse since I was in my teens. But God is God. Right now, God is, not in the past tense, not in the future tense, God is, in the present tense, God is the rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. Not just in the future, ooh, I better do this so I, you know, my court date goes okay. Right now, living this life that we're describing right now will give you everything your heart ever would long for. As counterintuitive as that might seem to you, that to, to, to make it your, your aim, your ambition to please the Lord will bring you joy unspeakable and full of glory. But that's exactly what Peter said. Though you have not seen him, yet you love him. And though you do not see him now, you trust in him and rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Someone has written that cultural Christianity is all about convenience and that true discipleship is all about commitment. 
Someone else has written, we cannot give God half of our heart and expect the whole of our heart to be satisfied. Which begs this question, how much of your heart is satisfied? Confidence and ambition. Let us pray. Lord, we will spend, I, I suppose, the first two million years of the kingdom yet to come just thanking you for reaching out, for, for capturing our hearts, even when they were inclined to go in a different direction, even when they were inclined to run away, when they were inclined to stay in the dark rather than come to the light. You came and got us where we are and made us new creations in the sun. You caused us to be born again. And so, because this has happened, these things ring true on our hearts and our minds. We, our, our heart says, of course, of course, of course. And yet, because we still have sin, we, it, it, all, it all gets messed up. And so while we're always hoping to make progress, we know that perfection will never take place in this life. But oh, how we long for it to always be pleasing to you and the Son and the power of the Spirit. Lord, fill our hearts with faith and confidence. May we hear the words of the Lord. May we hear your words, words spoken, your words spoken through the Apostle. And may those words become the, the description of our story, even as it is the description of Paul's story. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.